You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. For 30 years, the Forum on Workplace Inclusion has served as a convening hub for those seeking to grow their leadership and effectiveness in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion by engaging people, advancing ideas, and igniting change. Registration is now open for our 31st annual conference called Bridging the Gap on April 16th, 17th, and 18th, 2019, located in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion Annual Conference is the largest workplace diversity, equity, and inclusion conference in the U.S. and one of the largest in the world. Register today or visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org for more information. This is Episode 7 of the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast, titled Solving Tribalism in the Workplace Through Emotional and Social Intelligence, presented by Dr. Gleb Sapersky and hosted by the Forum on Workplace Inclusion event coordinator, Ben Rue. Listeners of today's podcast will also be treated to a special offer by Dr. Sapersky. More information on that later on. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. podcast. I'm Ben Rue, Program Coordinator at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. I am pleased to have you here for today's podcast, Solving Tribalism in the Workplace Through Emotional and Social Intelligence, with presenter Dr. Gleb Zipersky of the Disaster Avoidance Experts, LLC. Known as the Disaster Avoidance Expert, Dr. Gleb Zipersky has over 20 years of experience empowering leaders and organizations to avoid business disasters by addressing potential threats, maximizing unexpected opportunities, and resolving persistent personnel problems. The author of of a national bestseller and national bestseller on avoiding business disasters, The Truth Seekers Handbooks, a science-based guide, His cutting-edge thought leadership was featured in over 400 articles and 350 interviews in venues like Inc. Magazine, CBS News, Time, CNBC, and Fast Company. He serves as the CEO of the boutique consulting firm, Disaster Avoidance Experts. DAE uses a proprietary methodology based on cutting-edge research to help clients ranging from mid-sized businesses to Fortune 500 companies such as Aflac, Fifth Third Bank, Honda, IBM, and Nationwide Insurance. In his free time, Dr. Zisporsky makes sure to avoid disasters by spending abundant quality time with his wife. Today, Dr. Zisporsky will be speaking on how we can overcome our native tribalism through emotional and social intelligence. Without further ado, Dr. Zisporsky. Thank you so much. I appreciate the introduction and I appreciate the opportunity to share about this topic. Now, I want to ask you, the audience, were you ever unpleasantly surprised by tribal behavior by your colleagues, behavior that undercut diversity and inclusion? Would you like to be able to predict when your colleagues are most likely to behave that way? And would you like to be able to address such behaviors effectively and even prevent them in the future? These are the topics we'll talk about today. So first, we'll start by exploring the reasons for why our colleagues might behave in ways that we find unpleasantly surprising, ways that undermine diversity and inclusion. We'll focus on how our brains are wired in ways that result in such highly problematic behaviors, and we'll consider some effective strategies to minimize and even completely eliminate these challenges. Now, I want you to know that everything I talk about today will rely on the latest cutting-edge research in behavioral economics, neuroscience, 
behavioral psychology and other various academic uh, fields of research. That's one aspect of what I do. I look at this stuff and I bring it, I popularize it for a broad audience. Now, this is combined with case studies of best practices in resolving tribalism from successful leaders and organizations informed by my 20 years of consulting and coaching and speaking experience. So combining the everyday real practice with this academic research to get you the best of world, both worlds. That's what this presentation will be about. Now, here's what I can promise to you as the benefit of the strategies that I will convey if you actually use them. You'll have much less stress and anxiety during your workday. So instead of dealing with conflicts and tensions due to tribalism that undermine diversity and inclusion, much less stress and anxiety. Now, in addition to that, you'll also be able to focus on the core elements of advancing diversity and inclusion instead of facing resistance from your colleagues because of feelings of shame and guilt that they experience, which are a frequent obstacle to effective diversity and inclusion. Finally, you can be confident and sleep soundly noting that you'll exceed expectations for everyone around you because you're approaching diversity and inclusion in a way that aligns with both best practices from successful leaders and cutting-edge research on how our brains work. Just as importantly, in addition to these three benefits for you personally, you, to the extent that you're in a leadership position and we're all leaders nowadays to some extent or other, you'll get the tools needed to empower you to teach others these same strategies so that they can get all the same benefits that you're getting. And you can multiply the beneficial impact of this podcast by each team member you interact with to see how much value you're getting today as long as you implement these strategies. Now that might sound like a big promise, and maybe it is. What I'm presenting is truly a paradigm shifting approach, one that goes against typical intuitions and gut reactions and counter to much advice that you might have received in the past. Now, unfortunately, traditional paradigms, ones from the past, ways of doing things aren't going to work nearly as well in the increasingly uncertain and technologically disrupted future. And we all need to look forward to the cutting edge of the research in order to succeed. And that's why spreading cutting edge strategies on diversity and inclusion and other areas relating to decision making and avoiding disasters is my passion. What I want to do is counter bad advice that holds folks back from success, causes them to not see reality clearly and make really bad decisions, leading to suffering and harming well-being and flourishing. And I really don't want you or your teams to suffer. So that's where I'm coming from. Now, I know what some of you might have thought when I started speaking. Where are you from? Anybody asked ever ask you that? I get asked that all the time. Now, I don't look like a foreigner. I fit in fine based on looks alone. You, you might see that from the page, from my photo. Now, as long as I don't open my mouth and reveal my accent. <laughs> so my accent is obviously why people ask where I'm from. So let me tell you where I'm from. My parents fled to the US as refugees when I was 10 in 1991. They left a tiny Eastern European country called the Republic of Moldova, when the country was freed from Russian domination. Now, the Republic of Moldova was is most famous for being one of the most unhappy countries in the world. <laughs> As you can imagine, I'm pretty glad that they left. We settled in New York City. I grew up dirt poor. We lived in roach-infested apartment homes. We wore other people's hand-me-down clothes. 
At least we got lucky with my dad's job. He worked for many years driving a delivery truck for an Italian bakery. And every time I smell sourdough bread right now, I remember my dad coming home. He always brought back home delicious Italian bread. That's why we were so lucky. So he brought back this bread that fell off the back of the truck. And so that was a really good experience for us. Now, my parents couldn't afford to buy me a bus pass, so I walked the three miles to school and back every school day, including in the winter when it was pretty cold and snowing with a hand-me-down coat that was two sizes too big. I remember the wind whistling through it because it was really big and chilling me throughout. So I walked down the hill from where my home was and then up to the next hill to the school and then downhill and uphill back home again. So it was literally uphill in the snow both ways. I was really amused when I grew up and learned about the expression that uphill in the snow both ways means an exaggeration of something really hard. But back then, it was a, just a regular part of my life experience. So despite my poor surroundings, my parents taught me to be proud of my cultural heritage. So unlike many immigrants, I decided to retain my accent as a way of ensuring my connection to my cultural heritage. Well, I found out later that it was a kind of a dumb decision, at least if I wanted people to trust me according to what I learned later about research on accent discrimination. So there is recent research showing that Americans tend to discriminate against people with foreign accents. Studies show that they, we, put less trust in what people with foreign accents say, regardless of the actual accuracy of those statements. But that's not a conscious decision, but a gut reaction, what's called an implicit bias. So a subconscious negative reaction the one that we now don't realize that we're having. In fact, some of you may be putting less trust in what I say because of my accent, without you knowing it. That's an implicit bias. You might or might not, but research says that we tend to do so. And that has to do with one of the things that we're gonna talk about today, which is something that scholars term the halo effect and the horns effect. What are those? Those are two specific errors that we tend to make. The horns effect goes that if we dislike one characteristic of someone, then we have too negative view of their other characteristics. The halo effect is kind of the opposite. If we like one characteristic, then we have a too positive view of their other characteristics. So that's what the horns effect and the halo effect are like. Now, the horns effect is personal for me. It's what causes discrimination against people like me with foreign accents. Now, there's only one foreign accent where there's no discrimination against it in the US. And if you can guess what there is, I'll give you a second. All right, I'll reveal it. So it's British. We still have, they still have a cultural imperialism going for them. So it's what causes other forms of discrimination, the horns effect, such as racism, sexism, ableism, ageism, on all the other isms, other forms of discrimination. Now, but however, you might be surprised to learn that it has many other consequences as well, which aren't intuitively obvious. So let me give you an example. I used to be a professor at Ohio State. I taught there for about seven years. And when I was a professor at Ohio State, and we had this big football rivalry with uh, the University of Michigan. So we have this Buckeyes, the Ohio State Buckeyes, and the uh, University of Michigan Wolverines. And so when I was a professor at Ohio State, I was contractually obligated to cheer for the Buckeyes, naturally. We didn't exactly like Michigan fans. They were big rivals of Ohio State. And the Columbus, Ohio, which is where I live right now, 
and which is uh, the hometown of the Buckeyes, there's not much liking for Michigan fans. So what does this relate to? I was giving a presentation to about 100 local HR professionals in Columbus on a large diversity inclusion conference. So it was a conference of HR professionals who were specializing in diversity inclusion, leaders in this field, and I was giving a presentation to them. And I asked them, hey folks, how many of you would be willing to hire a Michigan fan? Raise your hand. Now, how many did you think they would say they'd be willing to do it? Only three out of 100 people raised their hands. Three out of 100 people. Now, of course, being a Michigan fan or a Buckeyes fan doesn't cause you to be a better employee. And these are people who are trained in addressing diversity inclusion issues, HR professionals, but they still felt this horns effect toward uh, Wolverines fans, toward University of Michigan fans. That's a big problem. So the horns effect and the halo effect, which of course they feel a halo effect for Buckeyes fans, so they'd be more likely to hire them than they should. It's especially dangerous in hiring and assessment. Let me give you an example. So I was doing some consulting for a regional manager of a series of clothing stores in New York, and uh, she oversaw about 4,000 people in staff. Now she was concerned by the lack of diversity in her stores. It prevented her sales team from connecting with customers as well. She tried to incentivize diversity hires naturally, but she still didn't get the desired diversity if she wanted, despite incentivizing diversity hires. She brought me in to examine the hiring process, you know, what's going on. So I did some uh, interviews, focus groups, and the actual process. I observed what was going on, and I helped her recognize the problem. So what's the problem? Well, incentivizing diversity hires, which is the traditional way we go about, and a quite appropriate way of improving diversity within an organization, being more inclusive, it addresses the horns effect, which is the disinclination, the antipathy, the dislike of hiring people who are different. Unfortunately, it doesn't address the halo effect, the tendency to hire people who are like yourself. So it addresses the horns effect, doesn't address the halo effect. And that's a problem that resulted in this clothing regional stores uh, for the regional manager of the series of clothing stores not being able to get the diversity she wanted. So we worked to revise the structured hiring process to not only give positive points for diversity, which is what many folks do, but also give negative points for similarity. And that's not simply visible similarity, but also invisible similarity. Things like which college the person went to, which football team they rooted for, the Buckeyes of the Michigan, similar accents, similar cultural backgrounds, similar cognitive biases, we'll talk about that, and down to what flavors of ice cream they liked, as long as this is perceived as important by the interview. So anything in the interview that resulted in the interviewer feeling that like the, the person they were interviewing was like them. We established a clear and transparent process of assessing these matters, as you can imagine, what gets measured gets managed. And it took a little bit of time for the hiring um, managers, for the people who are doing the recruiting, to internalize this new uh, system because they, they felt it was kind of unfair to penalize the people who are like them. But you know, we can feel it's unfair, but the research is the research. And the, the lack of diversity is the lack of diversity. So eventually the consequences in about nine to 12 months was that the hires grew substantially more balanced and resulted in the kind of diversity the regional manager wanted. So that's 
great, that's exactly what we wanted to see. And that was the positive outcome of that intervention. I want to ask you to right now think about for yourself, where does the halo effect and the horns effect show up in your work? And then how can you address the halo effect and the horns effect in your work? I'll give you a few seconds to think about it without speaking onward, just to let you reflect on it. Now, I want to tell you that for more on the halo and horns effect, you can check out the resources on disasteravoidanceexperts.com. So again, that's D-I-S-A-S-T-E-R, disaster, avoidance, you want to avoid disaster, it's E-A-V-O-I-D-A-N-C-E, and experts, E-X-P-E-R-T-S.com. So there's many more resources on this topic. And if you email me at gleb at disasteravoidanceexperts.com and mention this podcast, I'll send you a manual that we sell for $10 on addressing such problems for free. So free manual. Send me an email, gleb at disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the broad framework of this presentation, and that's emotional and social intelligence, because understanding and addressing these problems requires emotional and social intelligence. What are these two things? What's emotional intelligence? What's social intelligence? Emotional intelligence relates to two broad, it describes two broad skill sets. Awareness of your emotions, both surface moods and deep emotional drivers, and the ability to manage your emotions, both surface emotions and deep drivers. So that's emotional intelligence. Now, social intelligence is related but distinct. It's two broad skill sets, awareness of other people's emotions and relationships, surface and deep emotions and relationships, and the ability to manage, to influence other people's emotions and relationships to you and to each other both surface and deep. So that's the two broad things, the categories, the topics, the skill sets that we'll be talking about as a way of addressing the kind of tribalism that hurts us, the hail and horns effect, and a couple of other things we'll talk about a little bit later in the presentation. So now let's talk about what I mean that this presentation will go against your intuitions and typical advice. To understand the future of diversity and inclusion, what we need to do is go back to our prehistoric roots. Imagine your distant ancestors. You're sitting in a cave around the fire. It's nice, warm, comfortable. You're sharing stories and food with each other. You're surrounded by your tribe of a few dozen people, ranging from your parents and children to your distant nieces and nephews. Remember, we lived in small tribes back then. That's how what we are adapted for. That's the environment for which our brain is comfortable. So you're sitting around this fire in this nice warm environment. Suddenly, you hear a loud cry. The lookout has spotted a group of warriors from an enemy tribe. They're coming to attack yours. The men grab their weapons and run to meet the threat. The women take the children and go deeper into the cave. That was the life of our ancestors, fighting other tribes for food and territory. What would happen in that environment if you didn't have strong tribal instincts? You wouldn't survive, of course. We are the descendants of those who survived in that harsh tribal environment. Is it any wonder that evolution has programmed their mind to be tribal, to mistrust and reject people who 
whose accents aren't like ours, who don't look like us, who don't think like we do, who don't cheer for the same football teams. Tribalism is part of human nature. It's part of our instincts. It's part of our intuitions. It's what we call our gut reactions. It's all a part of our evolutionary heritage. Diversity inclusion initiatives always have to struggle against human nature. And that's what we're doing when we're promoting diversity and inclusion. We're struggling against basic human nature. We are going against the natural state into the civilized state. That's what diversity and inclusion is about. It's about becoming civilized. It's not about the natural gut intuition state. Imagine another aspect of becoming civilized, which is having to struggle against our natural impulses to eat as much sugar as possible. Now, in the savanna environment, we had to eat as much sugar as possible, of course, in order to survive. That was very important for us. So whenever we found a source of sugar, some honey, we had to eat as much of it as possible in order for us to reproduce and survive. So that, again, is where we come from. We're the descendants of those people who did that. Now, in our current world, that's a bad idea. You don't want to eat all the Twinkies that you can get your hands on. Not good. So that, that's not something you want to do. Now, I mean, I don't know about you, but my favorite form of sugar is cheesecake. That's my Achilles heel, especially if it falls off the back of the truck. So eating sugar is an evolutionary inbuilt instinct that helped us in the savanna environment, but hurts us now in the modern world. And so that's the same kind of thing that we have to fight against to be civilized instead of following our nature so that we have a physically and mentally healthy life in the modern world. Similarly, we have to learn to be civilized and go against our intuitions to cultivate diversity and inclusion because diversity and inclusion are, of course, vital for the health of our organizations in the modern world, which is multicultural, which is disrupted, and will become more multicultural, disrupted, and complex over time. The less the world looks like the savanna environment, the more we have to fight against those tribal impulses. And that's a basic paradigm that we have to paradigm shift essentially in all of our understanding of how diversity and inclusion works. So these responses of tribalism and fight or flight against enemy tribes enable the survival of our ancestors. So naturally, trusting your gut, your intuitions feels comfortable to you and to all of those employees who are maybe not so on board with diversity and inclusion initiatives. And this basic human nature harms us in the modern world. Now saying that you shouldn't trust your gut goes against pretty much all advice out there. The vast majority of advice by the most prominent business gurus suggest you trust your gut. Unfortunately, they rely on their personal experience and feeling of comfort with gut reactions, not on the research. You've probably seen in your everyday experience with diversity and inclusion that following your gut for many people does not result in the good <laughs> outcome. Now, many diversity inclusion experts also follow their gut and how they deal with people who are resistant to diversity inclusion efforts, and they use shame and guilt. Unfortunately, the research shows that's a bad way of approaching diversity inclusion. In the long term, it's not effective. It's the same as fat shaming people who have difficulty controlling eating urges. It's problematic, it's ineffective, doesn't work in the long term. Instead, 
we have to understand that those who are not aligned with diversity inclusion are simply exhibiting natural intuitive gut reaction behaviors. Our goal should be to understand the evolutionary and emotional drivers of these behaviors and to address the root causes of their behaviors through effective research-based strategies that helps these people become civilized. In the same way that we've learned to now naturally eat with forks and knives in civilized behavior, not something we did as kids, we can become oriented toward diversity inclusion if we make appropriate efforts and use the right strategies to do so. Now I'm gonna ask you again to reflect on these two questions before we go onward. How can this understanding of our intuitive tribalism and consequent, consequence steering away from shape and guilt in diversity and inclusion impact your DNI work? And what are the next steps you can take to integrate this approach to diversity and inclusion into your organization? All right, let's go on. To help us understand the emotional, evolutionary drivers of these behaviors, we'll talk a bit how about how our mind works. Now, I mentioned already that we aren't adapted to the modern environment. We are creatures of our evolutionary background. We haven't had time to evolve to adapt to the modern environment because it came about so quickly. I mean, if you think of the rapid pace of change from now to a century ago, huge, huge change. So the, all of our civilized history is maybe about 6,000 years old, and that's not much evolution at all. Emotions are a very powerful driver of what motivates us. Research shows that they motivate maybe about 80 to 90% of what we do. Emotions of comfort and discomfort, anxiety and frustration, anger and fear, this is what motivates the large majority of what we do and how we think. Now let's talk a little bit about how we think. Apparently, the old model, the Freudian model of id, super ego and so on, is really outdated. That's not how our brains work, according to the research. There are approximately speaking two thinking systems. One is the autopilot thinking system, also called system one. It's very fast, very habitual, very intuitive. That's the gut reaction system. And it turns on in milliseconds. It's the, what takes us out of the way of a moving bus. It's this flight or flight, fight or flight response, the saber tooth response. Might've heard of it as the lizard brain. Now, there's a different system called the intentional system, which is the more logical, reasoning, abstract system. It's the system that you can feel yourself using when you're trying to resist that second cookie. So when you, it's really hard, you really wanna take that second cookie, but you feel yourself resisting it. That's the system you're using. Or when someone is saying something with which you disagree and you want to interrupt that person, but you're really holding on and trying to resist it and letting that person finish her thought because you otherwise, you know, if you interrupt that person, you'll be rude and you know, won't be a good situation. So that's the intentional system. It turns on in about a second or so, so quite a bit slower, very much slower than the autopilot system. And it's effortful, it takes willpower and energy to use that system. The, our thinking systems, mostly the autopilot system, a little bit of the intentional system, make lots of systemic and predictable errors. These are called cognitive biases. The halo effect and the horns effect 
are two examples of cognitive biases, the systematic and predictable errors that we all make as human beings. And we'll talk about a couple more in the next section of the presentation. And that's what we want to be able to address because fortunately we can use our intentional system to learn about these predictable errors, these cognitive biases and address them. So let's talk a little bit about another one called empathy gap. Across the board, organizations tend to underestimate the importance of employees' emotions. When I bring up this issue, I often hear some version of the following, they get paid, why do we have to care about what they feel, right? <laughs> but let's be real, it's emotions that motivate actions and shape our thoughts. As I mentioned, extensive research on a whole variety of companies, for example, shows that money is only one motivator. And in fact, once people have more than a minimal amount of money, it's often not the main motivator. Other emotions, other drivers become much more important, things like pride, satisfaction, and so on. I'll give you an example uh, with a, another consulting client of mine. This one allowed me to talk about my work for them, so I'll be naming the client. Otherwise, of course, it would. There's an engineering consulting firm in Columbus called Edison Welding Institute to whom I provided consulting. Now, they had trouble getting their engineers to do selling. They provided training on sales, but the engineers still didn't want to do what the company managers and the HR staff wanted. And the goal was to get engineers to spread the word about the company by doing white papers, blogs, conference presentations, and so on. Now, engineers are generally introverts who feel proud and satisfied with solving technical problems, not extroverts doing sales and outreach and marketing. It was also a status and mission issue. Engineers perceived that doing sales wasn't their job and they perceived it as a low status activity. They brought me in to figure out what to do, how to address this issue. And I looked at how EWI was communicating to its engineers and saw that they weren't, the engineers weren't motivated by the business speak used by EWI, such as building a personal brand. They're emotionally motivated to solve technological problems, as I mentioned. I talked to my client about this problem. He is the HR VP, Mark Matson, the person in charge of HR, and told him that, hey, the engineers aren't emotionally engaged with the kind of language and the motivation that you're using. And Mark told me, engineers have emotions? <laughs> and you, know, you might laugh, but how many people in your organization do you think might feel this way about others within your organization? To motivate engineers to sales, required focusing on their emotional needs, their autopilot system, and changing the incentives for their emotional decision-making on a daily level. What we did was we investigated their motivations and found that they're strongly motivated by social status among their peers. So we changed communication to engineers to encourage them to gain reputation outside the company and be thought of leaders in ways that aligned with the language and motivations of engineers. We associated pride with satisfaction with selling via doing white papers, blogs, conferences, and that's what it meant for them to respect them and their perspectives and appeal to their emotional needs. After all, it's emotions that motivate actions. As a result, the EWI HR staff and managers were much more capable of getting engineers to sell. And how does this relate to EWI? Of course, it's crucially important. The empathy gap is very important for diversity inclusion initiatives. Think about people in positions of privilege. People in positions of privilege and various aspects of diversity 
have real difficulty empathizing with what it's like to be in positions of people who are marginalized, people who experience bias. For example, those with native US accents have trouble resonating with the challenges I experienced due to my accent. I am, I'm also a person who's living with a mental illness, an anxiety disorder. And for those who don't live with a mental illness, they have trouble resonating with this challenge. The same goes for any other aspect of diversity and inclusion. So what you want to be thinking about, and this is the next kind of two questions to reflect on, where and how might the empathy gap manifest in your organization on diversity and inclusion front? And how can you take steps to address the way it impacts your diversity and inclusion initiatives? Again, take a couple, take a few seconds to think about this before we proceed. All right, let's go on and talk about a different, less visible, less audible perhaps with the accent form of tribalism. And this might not be a tribalism that you are uh, very familiar with. It has to do with cognitive perceptions, with personalities, with cognitive preferences. It has to do with optimism and pessimism. Now, are you an optimist or a pessimist? What is optimism and pessimism? The optimism bias is a cognitive bias that has to do with unrealistically positive evaluations of reality. The pessimism bias, by contrast, has to do with unrealistically negative evaluations of reality. Both have evolutionary reasons. It was good for a group to have some optimists and some pessimists, as each could facilitate survival in different contexts. The optimists were great when things were going well, pessimists were great when things weren't going well. This is the bias that at some point could have cost me my speaking and consulting business and my marriage. I was married to my wife since 2003 and we had our most tense moments in the spring of 2014. We previously had separate professional activities, but in 2014, we teamed up in working on my speaking and consulting business. Now she manages the behind the scenes operations. We had a lot of arguments and tensions, not interactions. It, you know, it basically, she was really thinking that things weren't going well, that things would be very hard, a lot of tensions. And I thought that things would be going fine, that they would be great. You know, so she uh, basically was expressing the thoughts that, hey, uh, you, you need to hunker down, you need to work on these things. And I said, let's just try a bunch of stuff and see what works, see what sticks. Uh, I am the kind of person who thinks that the grass is always green on the other side. She's, kind of, she's the kind of person who thinks that the grass is always yellow on the other side. <laughs> so we are quite different. And it was only once we realized these differences in our professional collaboration having to do with optimism and pessimism that we understood exactly why we were having so many conflicts and tensions. And from then point, we found ways to address these problems in an intentional way to improve each other's ideas and solve these problems. And I'll give you an example by the kind of consulting I did for this uh, type of work. Now, one thing to note is that optimism and pessimism bias, they're a hidden form of bias that may well be missed by existing diversity inclusion initiatives. After all, these personality types, optimism and pessimism, aren't captured on standard assessments like Myers-Briggs, DISC, and others. 
but it's crucial to address this dimension of diversity if you want to have a really healthy organizational culture. Let me give you an example. I consulted at a local mid-sized nonprofit, and there was a great deal of team conflict there. Now, where did it come from? Well, Optimus generated lots of ideas. They had really great ideas, they perceived as great ideas, for going forward with a nonprofit's mission, but pessimists kept shooting them down. And they kept saying, no, this is a bad idea, this will never work. Now, what were the self-perceptions on either side? The optimists perceived the pessimists as naysayers, who never allowed good ideas to go forward. By contrast, pessimists perceived optimists as always going off half-cocked and coming up with flawed efforts. As a result, both groups felt defensive and had negative relationships with each other. But how much more effective would it be if both groups had played to their strengths instead? If the optimists were allowed and encouraged to generate ideas while knowing that all ideas are half-baked? What if pessimists weren't shooting down ideas, but focusing and taking the half-baked idea and baking it further? And that was the focus of the changes I worked on on the nonprofit. And that was how my wife and I also figured out how to collaborate well together. Separating the process of generating ideas, giving that to the optimists. Pessimists aren't good at generating ideas because they immediately shoot down ideas that they generate themselves. And then giving these ideas to the pessimists the pessimists select the best ones and work to finish them into a finalized form. So that's the best way for pessimists and optimists to collaborate together. It's especially important to have someone who argues against ideas in a team. You sometimes you have teams of too many optimists and it's really not helpful because then you have a lot of bad ideas going forward. Now this rather simple transformation made a really high improvement, drastic improvement in meetings. It really improved employee engagement and the quality of ideas going forward. So this is a form of tribalism that we have to understand is a hidden bias, an implicit bias when it's not visible, but it's there and it really harms, harms organizations if we don't address it. So I want you to think about now, to what extent does optimism bias and the pessimism bias impact your organizational culture? And how can you integrate addressing these and other hidden biases into your diversity and inclusion initiatives. Take a few seconds to think about it before we go forward. All right, going forward, there are three key ways of dealing with dangerous judgment errors with cognitive biases. One, you want to learn about and watch out for dangerous judgment errors by yourself. Now they're described in depth in my book and other content but disaster avoidance experts offers. So the book is the Truth Seekers Handbook, a science-based guide, which is available on amazon.com and disasteravoidanceexperts.com. There's another one coming out soon called Never Go With Your Gut, published by Career Press. Uh, so you can look for that and pre-order it if it's not already published by the time you hear this podcast. But in the meantime, check out the Truth Seekers Handbook, a science-based guide, and lots of other resources available and disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Two, you want to integrate knowledge into your team and organization about these dangerous judgment errors. And you want to have everyone watch out, not simply yourself. Three, most important, I would say, is implement evidence-based approaches in your organizations and teams to avoid and address dangerous judgment errors. If you create these institutionalized mechanisms, these research-based approaches, you'll automatically take care of a lot of these problems. 
the quickest and easiest of these techniques, really easy to implement, is for every decision, especially about diversity inclusion, but more broadly as well, ask a series of five questions that will allow you to get at really critical information and automatically address a number of biases. And here they are. The first question, and again, just to be clear, all of these questions are informed by a combination of extensive research combined with real-world experience from my clients of over 20 years of coaching and consulting. So, first question. What important information did I not yet fully consider? Again, let me repeat that. What important information did I not yet fully consider, or I and my team? Why is that a useful question? Well, because a common problem is that we tend to look for evidence that supports only our preferred options and only the people that we like, including in diversity inclusion, that's a huge problem. So what you want to do is make sure to look twice as hard, literally twice as hard, spend twice as much time and resources and energy looking for evidence that goes against your preferred option. Twice as hard for evidence that goes against your preferred option. Another problem why this is, question is useful is that we, according to research, tend to not create enough options when we make choices to find the best option. So make sure you gather information about all the best options available in order to make a good decision. Now, at the same time, it's key to balance gathering and considering important information with avoiding analysis paralysis. You want to gather information that's important and not information that's trivial. And that, of course, depends on each question. So you have to make and determine that uh, question for each decision. Ideally, what you'd want to do is take the time to consider before making the decision what kind of information you want to gather. So that way you don't have to make the determination in the here of the moment while you're making the decision. You could just say, okay, before I make this decision, what kind of information do I want to gather? And then not have to decide in the middle of things. Now, that's the first question. Second question, what relevant dangerous judgment errors, cognitive biases, did I not yet address? As I mentioned, many of these are described in my book, and a bunch of them are described on disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Third, what would a trusted and objective advisor suggest I do? You probably have a coach or a mentor or peers. Perhaps there are a number of people who you met at the next forum for workplace inclusion, who you can talk to and ask. Trusted advisors, what would they suggest you do? And imagine what they would say if they're not there with you, if you can't call them, but ideally you would call them, email them, text them, whatever you do, uh, whatever your preferred method of communication is. Fourth question, how have I addressed all the ways it could fail? This is perhaps the most critical step for implementing the decision well. You want to make sure that you prevent all the failure modes all the ways that this decision could fail. Finally, what new information would cause me to revisit the decision? Again, what new information would cause me to revisit, revise the decision? What you want to, why this question is useful is that it will help you avoid reconsidering your decision whenever any random information pops up. There are a number of people who tend to do so. This is a bad tendency, especially for group decision-making. This is going to be a big problem for group decision-making on major decisions where some people might not have agreed with a decision that was made and every little indicator that something's not going right would just give them more reasons to you know, say that, oh, we should have made a different decisions. 
In order to prevent that, you want to agree in advance what new information would cause you to revisit the decision. Maybe you hit certain numbers financially. Maybe this person, maybe you have employee satisfaction that is not as high as you want. Maybe your diversity inclusion numbers are lower than you prefer. That's when you revisit the decision. So that's the first strategy. I'll give you another one. It's a strategy called failure proofing. So again, there's a strategy called failure proofing. And it basically helps you, as it sounds like, prevent failure. It's a really effective strategy. And this is the manual. Uh, this is, I think, is the best resource you can have on preventing your diversity inclusion efforts that you decide on from failing. And that's the manual that I would email you if you email gleb at disasteravoidanceexperts.com and mention that you heard me on this podcast for Forum for Workplace Inclusion. So again, email me at gleb at disasteravoidanceexperts.com. We sell this manual for $10 there. If you email me, I'll get it to you for free if you mention this podcast. So this has eight steps. The first step, you gather all the people relevant for making the decision in the room. The second step, you explain the technique. The third step is you develop the next best alternative, NBA, to the project or a process that you're evaluating. So if you're deciding on a diversity inclusion initiative, then you want to develop some next best alternatives to it and have some people defend them, these next best alternatives. That will really help you figure out whether what you're doing is the best thing. And also, it will help you figure out whether you want to take some aspects from these next best alternatives and integrate them into your, in your strategy. So that's the next step. The fourth step, you want to imagine all the people in the room to, this, to figure out somehow that the project that you're launching the diversity inclusion initiative or whatnot has failed utterly. <laughs> Completely failed, bad, 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 you know, fail. Then what you want them to do is have each person write anonymously why this project failed, why it failed, why it went wrong, why the new hiring initiatives went wrong, why the new policies went wrong, what happened, why did it go wrong. Have them write it down anonymously so that they can write politically uncomfortable things without having fear of repercussions. And then have a facilitator, you know, uh, usually groups bring an outside facilitator, whether from outside the organization, coach, consultant, or someone from outside the group within the organization. So have the facilitator bring up the most common themes, get the people's notes and bring up common themes, and then brainstorm solutions, brainstorm ways that you can fix the problems that occurred. And then integrate the solutions into the project and launch the project. And so that's the technique. That's the failure proofing technique. In the manual, there will be, of course, many more detailed way things that you would do, but also there, there are two case studies, including one on diversity inclusion of how companies I consulted with actually implemented this strategy. So that's the failure proofing manual. And that's the five questions. I want you to, again, take a few minutes to take, I'm sorry, a few seconds to reflect on how you can see yourself integrating these strategies into your work, into your organization, and what ways you can spread it not only to yourself, but also to your team and throughout your organization. All right, let's go on to the final part of the presentation. 
The three key takeaways from this presentation, the three key takeaways, don't just go with your gut. This is a key paradigm shift. It goes against traditional and honestly outmoded advice from prominent business gurus about why we should go with our gut. Our evolutionary background, according to recent research, is evolved for the savannah, not the modern world. That means that tribalism and fight or flight is our natural intuitive state. Diversity inclusion efforts, they go against human nature, just like avoiding eating sugar goes against human nature. We need to use emotional and social intelligence to understand people's emotional drivers and influence them well to be civilized, not to be natural. The second takeaway, watch out for dangerous judgment errors. We need to learn to avoid cognitive biases that serve as great obstacles to outstanding diversity inclusion efforts, such as the Halen Horns effect, the empathy gap, the, the pessimism and optimism bias, and that's what you can use emotional and social intelligence strategies for. And we talked about two of these strategies to address dangerous judgment errors in your organizations. So that's a third takeaway. Integrate such strategies throughout your whole organizations. We talked about two things, the five questions and the failure-proofing strategy. So those are the three takeaways. Now let's move on to the last thing, the conclusion, the concluding part of this presentation of this podcast. Emotional and social intelligence strategies allow you to understand and influence other people's emotional drivers. They are the key to success in your ability to have great, outstanding diversity inclusion efforts. Now these are a tricky thing to invest in, to work on. It's a new field and the cutting edge of the research and only smart pioneering leaders who want to reap the benefits of being on the cutting edge will do so. And these pioneers will be the ones whose diversity and inclusion efforts will truly flourish. Think about how much better off you will be by doing so. Imagine all the people who work in your organization who might be suffering due to the horns effect and the halo effect. Consider all the fighting and tensions due to the pessimism and the optimism bias and the lack of understanding, the lack of connection due to the empathy gap. You can do something about this and I believe you will. I want to strongly encourage you in the next 12 months, focus 25% of your professional development and process improvement on improving emotional and social intelligence in your organizations. Now you should be spending no less than 10% of all of your resources of time and money on professional development and process improvement, working on the business. Now with a work week of 35 hours over 12 months, minus two weeks of vacation, holidays, you work about 1,700 hours. Of those, 170 should be spent on professional development and process improvement. Invest 42 hours into improving your emotional and social intelligence. Learn about them from books, podcasts like this one, videos, go to conference presentations, go to the forum for workplace inclusion. Integrate them into your organization. Take the knowledge from what you learned. And you can also get coaching and consulting to help you integrate these strategies. Organizations spend an average of 2,000 per year or so on each employee in professional development. What you want to do is invest $500 into improving emotional and social intelligence. Your efforts will be crucial to improving your team and yourself, and thus your professional success. I can promise you that if you adopt into your work the strategies I conveyed, you'll have much less stress and anxiety during your workday. You, instead of dealing with conflicts and tensions, 
due to the tribalism that we mentioned that really undermines diversity inclusion. You can be confident, you can sleep soundly, you can be safe and secure, knowing that you'll exceed expectations for everyone around you because you're approaching diversity inclusion in a way that aligns with both best practices and cutting edge research and how our brains work. And finally, you'll be able to focus on the core elements of advancing diversity and inclusion instead of facing resistance because of feelings of shame and guilt among your employees. Just as importantly, you as leaders will get the tools needed to empower you to teach others in your organization, in your team, these same strategies so they can all get the same benefits that you're getting. The crucial thing, the most important thing that you can do is take away this information and use it in your day-to-day -day work. Think about what kind of a story do you want to tell yourself about this presentation, about this podcast in a year from now? Do you want to tell yourself a story that you heard a paradigm shifting podcast, but you regret that work got away from you and you didn't integrate these strategies into your work? Or do you want to say that you heard a paradigm shifting presentation and then invested the efforts to integrate the strategies into your work and take your and your team's performance to the next level and leave the competition in the dust? Which of these stories reflects the kind of leader in diversity and inclusion that you want to be? Each of you, each of you listening to this podcast has the potential to shift the paradigm for your team and yourself. Each of you is empowered to reduce suffering and improve well-being for yourself and those around you through outstanding diversity and inclusion efforts. I'm confident that all of you can do it. I believe you're the kind of leaders who have what it takes to help yourself and your team stand hand and shoulders above the competition. Thank you for listening. I want to thank you, Gleb, for the wonderful podcast, and I want to thank you all for attending. There's just so much information there. That's so much great information to take in, and I was trying to remember that, well, Thank you for listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Listeners of today's podcast can take advantage of Dr. Sapersky's offer by emailing him at gleb at disasteravoidanceexperts.com and mention the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Subscribe to our podcast to get updates on the latest episodes. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember... Registration is now open for our 31st annual conference called Bridging the Gap on April 16th, 17th, and 18th, 2019. Register today or visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org for more information.